0: Today on Against the Grain, trusted, impartial, and independent, or largely unaccountable and part of the establishment, sociologist Tom Mills considers the evidence about the enormously influential British Broadcasting Corporation, or BBC, which is much revered by progressives in the United States and elsewhere. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. The British Broadcasting Corporation, or BBC, is the world's oldest national broadcaster and its biggest. Long accused of liberal bias, it's often looked at with some envy by those in the US as a publicly funded bulwark against the power of the corporate media. Yet a closer examination, as Tom Mills does in his book, The BBC, Myth of a Public Service, shows that the BBC has a fascination with the market, business, and elite interests, and a history of letting MI5, the UK's secret service, vet job candidates at the BBC for their political views. Mills is a lecturer in sociology at Aston University in the UK. When I had a chance to speak with Tom Mills, I asked him about the BBC's reach in the UK and around the world. Well,
1: globally, it's got quite a large reach through a number of um, outlets. So there's the World Service, which is the BBC's radio, public service radio operations, and that operates in a number of countries. And then the BBC programming itself, you know, gets consumed via different outlets. And um, it, the BBC has, you know, commercial arrangements and BBC Worldwide as as it was called, um, commercial um, outputs around the world. And that's, you know, it's it's never really, really clear like what the audience scale is, but we're talking in in a degree of somewhere around, um, you know, 300 um, million as a a global audience. And then in the UK, the UK has a, a relatively diverse news environment. I mean, we have a very highly concentrated Press, but if you look at audience figures, you know people are consuming a range of different media. Generally speaking, but the BBC alone is by far the most dominant output. So you've got you know somewhere somewhere like a uh, 95% of households using some sort of BBC service, um, and that 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 cuts across uh, local radio, um, t- terrestrial television um the uh bbc rolling news services flagship uh current affairs uh radio you know radio 4 which is a sort of um more elite kind of middle class cultural and current affairs radio station um and the iplayer which and the bbc website which uh you know these are very major sources of, of news so if you look at who kind of where people get their news from, the BBC is is always dominant, and there are, there are different sources there. If you can look at the Reuters Institute that looks at um, looks at this, but also Ofcom, which is the regulator in the UK. So it really it really is a um, its operations have shrunk in the last decade in terms of its of its income, but it remains the the dominant provider, not only of news and and current affairs, but a very major. Um, a very major organisation, like culturally uh, in the UK, and I think on top of that, on top of its reach, there's also this kind of um, symbolic character that the BBC has—not not just in British culture, but as this kind of seminal broadcaster, this, this pioneer of public service broadcasting as a model.
0: Of course, we we're hearing a lot about how faith in the media has been undercut in the last decade, at least. How has the BBC stood? During that time, in terms of how people uh, tend to trust it,
1: yeah. Well, the, the, if you look at the BBC's own publicity, you'd get the impression that there are enormous levels of public trust in the BBC's operation. But if if, if you look at the the, um, the data on this, it's broadly in line and usually behind some of the other broadcasters. It compares very very well to um the, the kind of lowbrow or popular or tabloid press in the uk you know the news values of which really are atrocious i mean you you basically and the, the uk press really is just notorious for having very very poor standards. so if you look at um public trust the bbc fares first pretty well it has that's usually seen you know by in the bbc's own accounts as you know it's its own reputation or impartiality and so on if you ask audience, audience's audience, how um, impartial they think the news service is, the, the BBC is sort of um, slipped slightly below the other um, broadcasters who also operate under the same sort of regulatory requirements. So in the UK, all all broadcasters, broadcasters, not just the BBC, are required to maintain due impartiality. The BBC's fallen behind. Now, in terms of what's happened in the last 10 years or so, yeah, there's been this sort of gradual decline in trust and the BBC remains a lot more trusted than some of the sort of less professional media outlets, but there's been a particular drop um, on of, of trust on the left um, in, in recent years. So this just this year there was a drop from 75% of people saying mo- they mostly trust the BBC down to 60% of people who identify on the left. And that's roughly at the levels of people who identify with the right. So the right has been generally less trusting of the BBC. And that's partly because the right-wing press has often attacked the BBC as being as being biased, as being institutionally left-wing. And a lot of the public debate around the BBC centres around this idea, this idea of the BBC being sort of institutionally liberal or left-wing.
0: It may be self-evident in the UK, but tell us about the funding model of the BBC, which I think is connected to the notion that the BBC should be trusted or, from the right, shouldn't be trusted.
1: Um, the right basically had this argument around the BBC, which is sort of based on the idea of it, a kind of liberal elitism, which will probably be familiar to some of your viewers from some of the rhetoric that comes out of the, um, you know, the right of the Republican Party um, towards the liberal establishment. The the, the 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 BBC's claim to independence in terms of its funding mechanism is basically the idea that, you know, the BBC since the BBC doesn't take advertising, and this m- may be less obvious to an American audience, but in in the UK there is no advertising on the BBC. The funding mostly comes from license fee payers, so that's in order to have, if you have television receiving equipment in a household or if you use the iPlayer, which is the online um, provider of BBC programming, then you have to have this television license um, and it's an annual payment and it's the criminal offence not to pay it and that makes up for the majority of the BBC's revenue. And then on top of that, you have some commercial revenue. Well, the idea of the BBC's independence is basically that this means that it's independent of economic interests, i.e., advertising influence, but also it's independent of the state because it's not coming out of direct trans taxation, it's been funded just by the licensee payer. So this this brings us back to like the sort of origins of the BBC, which is the vision of an independent broadcaster, which would be um, you know, standing above um, Commercial values, but also independent of politics, and that's kind of part of the founding myth of the BBC. Um, none of which stands up to any scrutiny whatsoever, but like it has is still still has a lot of purchase amongst not just the BBC itself, but I think a lot of its liberal supporters as well.
0: Well, let's talk about that. In the United States, on the left, people often look to the BBC with a bit of longing that in the UK you have a publicly funded media institution, which is not beholden to commercial interests and is more critical. And within the UK as well, there's a tendency for people who are on the left or who are liberal to also think of the BBC as representing an important model and also um, having a, if there's a a bias, that it's, it's a progressive bias. Can you tell us how the BBC got that reputation? Because your book is arguing quite clearly that such feelings about the BBC are misguided. But can you tell us about how it got that reputation among many on the liberal left, including, as I say, people here in the US?
1: Well, I mean, it's perhaps worth mentioning like how, where, how the BBC came to be and how in the United States you ended up with a, a different media system. I mean, the the, the UK actually sort of stumbled on this model of um, the BBC. Well, it actually started out as a a corporate consortium, essentially, which was led by Maconi. So there were a bunch of um, radio communications manufacturing companies and they had patented radio technology. And they didn't really know what to do with this technology. They wanted to sell it. Um, but in order to sell radio radio sets, basically, they needed to have broadcasters to produce material. And um, with the airwaves, as they call them, then being, you know, the, the bandwidth basically being a restrictive um Resource. Um, it was it was uh, it was licensed by the state basically. And what they said was, look, um, in order to make this commercially viable, we are going to um, you, the manufacturers, should set up this consortium, the British Broadcasting Company. Um, your your shareholders are it that will produce the content, and then you can sell your radios, and that's how you will make your money. Well, the thing was at this stage the big corporations hadn't quite twigged how they were going to commercialize the actual broadcasting products. That, that came later, particularly with the consolidation of advertising interests in the United States in the um, particularly the early 1930s and in the 1920s it wasn't that the, their interest basically lay with selling the radios um, and they were very happy for somebody else um, another organization to sort of step in and, and, and provide the, the content. Um, the, the first director general of the BBC, it was called, originally called his directing manager, I think, um, John Reith, had developed this very sort of ideological vision of public service broadcasting and a, a, as a public good, which would be non-commercial, which would be sort of elevated, which would be independent um, from politics. So that's where it came from. I mean, essentially what had happened was um, a, a selection of well more or less bureaucrats had been um given the authority by this consortium that wasn't particularly interested in what they were doing to produce content and they they negotiated with the state to then um get a royal charter and that gave rise to the bbc and the american media system obviously went off in a different direction but what what reef's vision that he crafted in this context which was basically an argument for the expansion of the bbc and um it's kind of um official stamp from 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 the monarch essentially at that time, um was essentially modelled on the British Civil Service. So the, this concept of impartiality that we've already discussed uh, was, was borrowed from the Civil Service, you know, the, the permanent um, state administration here um, as a way of negotiating the um, to and fro of party politics, basically to sort of be above that. So that's where the BBC model came from. Um, it was influenced by, you know, uh, particularly, you know, British Im- imperialist ideas and, and the Civil Service and and so on uh victorian notions of christian morality um a certain vision of nationalism but also you know but a, d- a distinct sort of imperial nationalism and then Ruth's vision really was for a national and imperial unity built around the symbols of empire and the bbc was very much part of that so that that was the origin of the bbc um and out of that arises, I suppose, something which could be agreeable to the left and the right in different ways. Um, one is a, a certain sort of nationalism, which would appeal to small C conservatives. And another at least is um, a, a vision there of a, a broadcaster, which would be independent of commercial interests and notionally independent of politics. So that, that's where the ideas come from. Um, in terms of its general appeal, I mean, I think you could you could say that the BBC is an appealing model and I think it is something which should be upheld in in, in, in the vision and to some extent um, in certain periods the BBC has been more or less independent of governments and has done important things. But the overwhelming evidence when you look at the historical record or the social scientific research on the BBC's reporting is that it's never, it's never lived up to that promise. Now in terms of like you know how American audiences I think should orientate themselves towards this institution, I mean my own view is that The BBC in important ways embodies that vision of an independent media organisation, but it's not it, right? And what the book is about I sometimes called a critique of the BBC, but it's not really. Um, what I'm trying to get people to do is think about the reality um, of the BBC, we, You know what, what this organisation really is, while, rather than what we would imagine it to be. Um, and that's why I finished the book with, with thinking about how, you know, how could we get there, how could we actually get a genuinely public and independent media organisation, given that the BBC isn't that.
0: And we will certainly discuss that as the hour goes on. I'm speaking with sociologist Tom Mills about his book, The BBC, Myth of a Public Service, which is published by Verso. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So you were talking about the origins of the BBC. How at that time was the BBC set up in terms of its governance structure? And what has been the BBC's relationship to the British state from from that point on?
1: Okay, so the um, when the BBC became the BBC Broadcasting Corporation rather than company, this was after the general strike, which is much much discussed in the literature around the BBC. Um, it was set up with uh, a board of governors who were notionally, you know, representatives of the public, and then the professionals who ran the BBC, the the, the journalists and the executives, were accountable to this board. The board was appointed um, by government and uh, by you know technically through something called the privy council which is a sort of um silly outdated constitutional um, feature of the of the british government but what it essentially means is that the prime minister of the day um gets to a point who sits on this this over, oversightary board there was a period that 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 was for most of the bbc's life from like 1927 um, onward until the Blair era, then it became the BBC Trust and now we've got something called a unitary board. but the, the broad none of this I would think is these details particularly interesting to your, your listeners. The important thing is that the BBC its governance model has always been that there's an, a kind of arms length oversightary executive board which which um, appoints the director general who's the head of the BBC and and has overall responsibility for the BBC's operations. In other words, the BBC has always been run by government appointees. So this was a basic, fundamental contradiction in in um, the, the the origin of the BBC that 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 main that, that stays the same today. So you, you've still got it's it's a slightly different picture now, basically, but you've got some government appointees and then a mix of sort of you know, the great and the good um, who people drawn from the corporate world and, you know, sort of the elites of British society basically at the top.
0: You argue, though, that while the BBC is, is not independent of the British state, it is also not a straight mouthpiece of the British government. Can you explain how that is and why that distinction matters here? Yeah,
1: I mean, you know, there, there's a kind of... Um, I guess a nuanced critique of the BBC on the left, which is that it's simply a mouse, mouthpiece of the government, and it and to be clear, it has been that a lot of the time. Um, it often echoes government perspectives. Uh, it tends to defer to governments much more than it does to leaders of the opposition. Its more fundamental orientation, though, is more to the world of officialdom. So it does try to ensure that form perspectives from formal politics are are represented. Now, in terms of its relationship with government, it's it's always been kept, you know, at, at an arm's length to some degree. But on on issues that really matter, the government has always been able to apply pressure on the BBC, and th- we see this particularly during periods of political crisis. You know, classically during uh, wartime, where the, the the government will be able to um, limit the amount of independence that the BBC has. I mean, A. J. P. Taylor, the um, English historian describes the the bbc as uh its independence as being preserved as long as it wasn't exercised which was quite a funny way of of saying what 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 it, what basically the bbc is somewhere ambiguous between being a complete instrument of government i a state broadcaster which will, when we think of that i suppose we would think of like um authoritarian regimes where the people running the um, The broadcaster are not only um, appointees of the government, as they in fact are in the BBC in the UK, but also, you know, part of the same um, taking their marching orders, as it were, from the government. And that's not quite how the BBC works. Um, But that said, the people who run it are not only drawn broadly from the same social strata, but often they are themselves um, involved in politics. So our current director general, Tim Davy. He's not like um, a high-ranking conservative or anything, but he's a formerly inactive conservative. Um, A lot of the people who are appointed to the board tend to be involved in politics as well. So it is a quite politicised institution, but like any part of the state, um, it has a certain degree of relative autonomy. I mean, we could have an interesting conversation about whether the BBC should even be considered part of the state but i think in a way that's a less useful way of thinking about it the way i think about it is okay what kind of autonomy do you have within this institution and what are the kind of what are the social interests and power relations between that institution and other parts of the the power structure or state or whatever it is you want to call it and i think if you look at it like that it's very clear that the the overwhelming editorial and co- editorial culture i mainly talk about um news and news journalism in the book has been formed within a particular context and central to that is this um this this editorial hierarchy which is um highly politicized and, and that 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 really shapes the 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 overwhelming kind of um nature of the BBC's output. Now that doesn't mean that it's universally always reflecting what the government wants, because that's that's not the case. Um the BBC does have critics of the government on it, obviously represents um like what you might call formal dissent from the official opposition and tries to represent the range of elite opinion. Um the particular controversy around the BBC at the moment is the role of high-profile high, high profile right-wingers at the BBC who are aligned to the government. But I think the problem with focusing on that as the, as the, the BBC domestically, I mean, as being simply an instrument of the government, is that it ignores the fact that just generally speaking, the orientation of the BBC has been towards the establishment or whatever sort of term you want to use.
0: Would you say that the fact that it is not just simply a mouthpiece of the British government, but is deeply embedded in the same establishment and and regularly reflects sort of the reigning wisdom of the British state, that that actually makes it a more effective institution in terms of influencing public opinion? Because unlike a sort of Pravda, it has a legitimacy. And yet, as you argue in your book on the BBC, over time, you can see very much the bias of the BBC toward elites, toward business interests, toward the the British state.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think to some degree, we need to be careful about the sort of claim we're making here, because it gives a lot of credit to um, the political elites and the elites elites in general to say that they're so smart that they've been able to preserve this sort of ambiguous autonomy. But that said, it was very explicit in the earliest days of the BBC. We see it during the general strike, and it's something that i um, talk about in some length in the book.
0: Can you tell us about that? The 1926 general strike.
1: Yeah. So I try and I try and be brief for people who aren't familiar with the history. But in 1926, after a protracted period of um, crisis, and um, basically the the miners went on strike and then called for a wider solidarity. The TUC um, supported the strike,
0: which is the trade union congress.
1: Sorry, yeah, the Trade Union Congress. So it was sort of supported by all of British, um, all of the uh, British trade unions. It was it's the biggest, biggest industrial um, dispute of, in British history. And the BBC during this dispute found itself in a very important role because the strike had also shut down the newspapers. So. Um, What happened there was that the two sources of news that everybody had were the government's propaganda newspaper, the sort of news sheet, really, um, small-scale news sheet that was being distributed, and the BBC. And there was a debate within um, government at that time between uh, the sort of moderates represented by Stanley Baldwin, who was prime minister, and actually some very... right-wing 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 figures and um winston churchill who him, himself was a member of cabinet and he wanted to take the bbc under the direct government control uh he was sort of a hardliner and, and what baldwin said was no that if they if they took the bbc under direct control that it would become less useful to them because people would simply disregard um Disregard everything that the BBC said. Uh, Churchill was very angry about this, and and people at the BBC liked to like to say how wonderful it was that actually the BBC maintained its independence. Now, what actually happened was that uh, uh, Reef, the Director General of the BBC, was he was an active supporter of the Prime Minister. He helped edit his speeches. Um, members, senior members of the BBC, moved into the Admiralty. Now, to put that in context for for your audience, if you would think of the the British Empire as being, you know, at this stage the, the greatest military power the world's ever seen, the Admiralty was the heart of the imperial machine. So it's like the equivalent of like CNN and the rest of them all moving into the Pentagon. Um, and the the BBC had its its broadcasts um, censored by you know what was essentially the British military industrial complex at that time. When the strike finished. Um, we thanked the prime minister and God and read Jerusalem, this sort of patriotic poem um, over the, the airway. So that gives you some feel for the lack of in- independence of the BBC at that time. They weren't even trying to be independent of government. Um, we said at that time that the government can trust us to not be impartial. Um, so that was a that was a deliberate strategy by the government at that time. Um, in terms of how that played out later, I mean, essentially what happens is that every time the, the BBC has always been kept on this this short leash by politicians. So every 10 years, there's this this renewal of the charter. Uh, the government gets to set the level of the licence fee. And if it wants to reduce the BBC's funding, and of course it gets to appoint a, point, um, a point, uh, People to it to its board, so it's been deliberately kept in that position. Like none of the none of those original mechanisms of political control have been ceded by by the government. So that that's where it's been kept. And as you as you rightly point out, that's a useful place for it to be. Um, it, in some ways, actually suits the BBC, I think. Um, but more than that, it definitely suits the establishment.
0: Tell us about the history of the secret arm of the british state and the secret services mi5 actively vetting the hirees for the bbc
1: yeah so this this went on from the 1930s and um up to the 1980s um so spanning most of the cold war uh, the majority of the the bbc's uh life and um it was negotiated between senior members of the BBC in secret with representatives of MI5 MI5's sounds uh, of military intelligence so that they were responsible for um espionage, but um essentially really for a lot of what they did was spying on the left and um you know anyone affiliated to the to the communist party which was what they did at the BBC they set up this secret system of um, political vetting, which meant that if you had any role where you might be able to exert any editorial influence at the BBC, um, whether applying for the job originally or applying for promotion, your your file, your CV, your application would be sent to somebody secretly working at, um, for MI5, and MI5 would express an opinion as to whether you would be considered a subversive. They would stamp it with a Christmas tree, which is the thing you'll see in the, in the stories, and this was the the secret arrangement where it would indicate to the people in the BBC that this person shouldn't be allowed anywhere near a microphone. Now, some of the debates around this have sort of centered on this idea of the secret state um, censoring the BBC and controlling its political output, which is definitely the case. Um, But one thing that really emerges, if you look from the files, the declassified files in this, you see that the leadership of the BBC were themselves very keen for MI5 to be um, in this vetting, so even when, on occasions where MI5 wanted to divert its resources elsewhere, the, the leadership of the BBC applied pressure for them to um, to either maintain and in some cases increase their vetting. And I think the, the reason for this was number one is that the, the BBC sort of center of gravity is basically at that point somewhere between right-wing conservatism to a liberal anti-communism but also the BBC wanted to ensure that this meant it could be safe from any kind of public embarrassment or attack by politicians so the BBC is always very very sensitive with the idea that it would step beyond the boundaries of political acceptability and I think this is still the case you know even outside of the Cold War context I mean political vetting um, disappeared but there was a very significant cultural change at the BBC during the 1990s, which was very much about bringing the BBC in line with the prevailing sort of mood amongst the the British establishment as Thatcherism took hold. So that what that showed actually was a, a representative of, i think of much broader relationship and you can see this again and again in the in the finals I and mean, the bbc has a very rich documentary record like 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 the state does um where at the senior level of the bbc you can see that there's actually this kind of um understanding let's say between um state officials politicians and the people running the bbc most of the, and, and then the, the journalists themselves tend to be getting limited in what they are able to do. So this is a slightly different model to how we tend to think about the relationship between media and the state, where on the one hand, you have the powerful interests. On the other hand, you have the media. I think the empirical picture actually is quite different. What you usually have is the conflict, an editorial conflict within the institution that represents conflicts outside of the institution. And how that's usually played is uh, this sort of diplomatic interaction at the top which in the early Cold War period was, you know, very much part of that kind of, I suppose, characteristic British sort of gentlemanly understandings that took place about certain people being no good. Um, and, you know, social relationships formed around Oxford or Cambridge, which, to be honest, have not haven't changed a great deal um, between now and then.
0: You're listening to Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. Today, we're discussing the BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation. I'm joined by Tom Mills, author of the BBC, Myth of a Public Service, which is published by Verso, and you can find a link to that book on our website, againstthegrain.org. He's a lecturer in sociology at Aston University in the UK. So you mentioned, Tom, earlier that uh, the kind of contradictions that you've been describing within the BBC, these contradictions around a bias toward the establishment and the status quo, and yet also a push for accuracy, as self-professed idea of impartiality. Those contradictions really strain at the seams in times of, particularly in times of social upheaval. Can you tell us about the BBC in the 1960s and 70s, how it was shaped by the social protests and cultural ferment of that period, and how those contradictions became more apparent?
1: Yeah, I mean, the, like like any institution in British society, and I think you know across the world, the the, the movements of the 60s and particularly the 70s had a really profound effect on the organisation of culture. I mean, there's no doubt that the um, the BBC's journalism and its cultural production became less uh, reverent, um, became more creative, and in some in some ways became more oppositional. Uh, in a way, I think the, the, a lot of the celebrated the most celebrated period at the BBC. Because the, the picture here is quite complicated, but the most celebrated period of the BBC was under this guy called Hugh Green, who was um, Director General um, from the uh, late 1950s um, throughout the 60s. And for that period, you know, the BBC became um, a little bit more um, edgy politically, it became much more conscious of. Uh, working-class perspectives and some of its cultural output, it became, I think, the, the, the general tone of it, really did un- undergo a general shift. Now, you, it's, it's easy to exaggerate that, and it's important to think about other things that were going on. And number one, the BBC had this commercial rival, and the BBC was initially the only television provider and the only radio, radio provider, and um, ITV, which um, it's sort of a shadow of its former self, but it was the the original commercial television uh, lobbied for by Tory MPs, um, sort of shook up some of the uh, establishment culture at the BBC, and the BBC had to respond to that. It had to respond to, as you say, like the general period of cultural change. I think the 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 real impact in terms of journalism probably came a little bit later. Actually, I mean, I think it's arguable even that it wasn't until the 1980s that the BBC actually. Um, started to get influenced by, you know, the shift towards investigative journalism and this sort of thing. And partly that was um, the ITV companies, the the commercial companies that sort of led the charge on that. Um, but also, yeah, there was this, this broader kind of um, self-confident um, social movements, but also the trade union movement as well in the 1970s, shift to the left, and as did the Labour Party. And all of this had an impact on the BBC's internal culture. Um, But the other thing that was going on in the background that was important was that the BBC's income went up. I mean, as BBC's, um, as as, as coloured television licences were introduced, BBC had this huge influx of revenue um, during the 1960s, which made it much more free because it didn't have to keep going back to the government to ask for increases in its TV licences. Um, but also it was expanding, right? So any organisations that starts to expand and create new programmes and buy up even mundane things like buying up new property, where people would be making programmes physically further away from the editorial hierarchy, for example, had a you know all of this had an impact on the BBC. And that starts to really shift actually in the 1970s particularly in the late 1970s, when you get a period of high inflation, where the BBC has to keep going back to the government. But also, there's a sort of moderate conservative turn there at the leadership. So that's when, that's the point at which you start to get this conflict between conservatism at the top, and a younger generation of programme makers and and journalists at the bottom. So that really comes to a a head, I think, in the 1980s, where you have a series of very determined attacks on the BBC's programme making, and it's in the aftermath of facturism, really the, the these tensions start to get, get resolved and the BBC's British journalism become becomes more risk-averse. I mean, I think it's important not to exaggerate the extent to which the BBC's um output was oppositional, because it certainly wasn't. Um but in news it remained relatively conservative and always always had been. It tended to be at the margins and particularly in the sort of investigative programming and, and certain current affairs programs um, where, where it tended to be a little bit more oppositional and certainly more than it is today.
0: Uh, you mentioned the backlash, the right-wing backlash that was brewing in the late 70s and the 80s with the ascendancy of Margaret Thatcher and then her full-on attack on uh, many sectors of society in the UK, especially the working class. How did the BBC cover the miners' strike that rocked the UK in 1984-85?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, the BBC basically um, took the, basically the consensus view for the, for the most part that um, this was a legitimate um, dispute. Um, in, in any particular area of conflict, the BBC would tend to try and not take sides. But basically, the government perspective tended to predominate in the BBC's output. I mean, it has some very good journalists' Um, working there at that time, a particular, um, particularly remembered incident in amongst um, the trade union movement was uh, when the police violently attacked a, a mass picket at the the Battle of Orgreave, and then the the footage was re- reversed to make it appear that um, the 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 charge had been provoked by the strikers, basically. And this was alleged at the time by um, Tony Benn, a leading figure in the um, left of the Labour Party, and has been repeatedly dismissed by the BBC, and then was quietly conceded later in the early 1990s that in fact, yes, this had happened. um, But even at the time, there was this um, anxiety at the top of the BBC, actually, that they hadn't been particularly neutral. And so, for example, they, they tended to see this as being um, the, the strikers as, being, as, as breaking the law, um, the police enforcing it. And, you know, the, 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 I suppose none of this would particularly surprise um, most of your, your listeners. I mean, there's a lot of research and media coverage generally of protests and um, industrial action and the BBC's coverage of it. Um, It's been what you would expect from that. I mean, and that goes back to the earlier studies that the BBC is reporting from the 1970s, uh, where they tended to be blaming workers for economic strife, where the underlining reasons for the strike didn't tend to be emphasize where they tend to be treated as questions of law and order. Violence tends to be highlighted um, rather than the political basis of some dispute. So, you know, th- these are just general um, patterns you'll find in BBC's reporting, and they're not actually so different to other media outlets, actually.
0: Tom Mills is my guest. We're talking about his book, The BBC, Myth of a Public Service. I'm Sasha Lilly. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. In the early 2000s, in 2003, as the UK, the US were gearing up for the invasion of Iraq. Um, There were protests all over the world, including mass, mass protests in the UK against potential war in Iraq or invasion of Iraq. How did the BBC cover those protests? And again, another moment where some of the contradictions of the BBC became apparent?
1: Yeah, I mean, the BBC, It came under a lot of stress over its coverage of Iraq. It, It led to a very, very public fallout between it and the Blair government at the time. But actually, the BBC's reporting of the Iraq war was broadly favourable to the government's case. I mean, there was a a study um, carried out at the time by academics from Cardiff University, and they found that the BBC was more pro-war in its case than the other, than the commercial broadcasters. And I think than CNN, actually, if I recall correctly. So the BBC was broadly favourable towards the government's case of war. Uh, for war, and in terms of its coverage of the anti-war movement tended to give much much less focus than, say, Sky, which is the commercial rival or ITV or Channel 4, and it was quite explicit about that. Um, Kevin Marsh, who was uh, a British journalist who was who headed the uh, the BBC's flagship radio for current affairs program today, which is listened to by all of the important people in British society in the morning, um, was quite explicit in saying that he didn't consider protests themselves to be um, news. The way that they understand they should cover events is basically around dissent. So what was it that the important people were saying, and by important they mean people in the cabinet and also people in the intelligence services and in the military. So the way that the BBC handled this was to focus less on um, either the, 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 the issues or the public opposition to war and more towards splits that were occurring amongst the as, as, as that as that strain started to work its way through. And it was it was particularly um, obvious, actually, in retrospect, what was going on here. I mean, some of the figures involved have been quite explicit about it, saying that they were being briefed by MI6, which is what we talked about MI5 earlier, MI6 for the International um, International Intelligence Body. Um, that that there would be no weapons of, or ask them how they would respond if there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. So they were worried already um, as to what the fallout of Iraq would be. And because people at the BBC have good relations with these people as you know as sources, both formal and informal, um, they already knew that they were getting themselves into, into hot water then. And this led to this very, very public fallout between between the BBC and the government when the BBC finally um, started to question the government's case of war, um, which eventually eventually resolved itself by the Director General and the Chair of the BBC being driven out and replaced.
0: I'd like to ask you about the relationship of the BBC with elite financial interests. Austerity is, of course, not something uh, new in the UK, Thatcher imposed austerity, but following the global financial crisis of 2007, 2008, the British government uh, fully embraced austerity. And I wanted to ask you how the BBC reported on the global financial crisis and how you see the BBC as it relates to, to business interests, even as a public institution.
1: Yeah, I'm really glad you asked me that, actually, Sasha, because like most of my work, um, I mean, the, the book really combines my own research, which was looking at the BBC's co- process of cultural change after Thatcherism with the existing research and, and some of my own work looking at the BBC's history. But my focus really and my research started from basically exactly this puzzle, which was, well, we pretty much know why commercial media reflects the interests of large corporations and economic elites, it's less obvious why the BBC would do so. And this became particularly apparent to me in 2008, when I was starting to research for my PhD, um, which was examining the, the organizational structure and culture of the BBC. When um, I more or less registered when for my PhD when Lehman Brothers collapsed, and originally then I was interested in looking at war and peace, and that's what my initial research had been on. And then I switched to looking at the BBC's business reporting. And what I was interested in there is trying to figure out, well, what is the answer to that puzzle? Why is it that the BBC seems to reflect these economic interests when the original model of the BBC was that it should be completely independent? It would rely on advertising, for example. It's not embedded within the corporate structure in quite the same way as, um, say, CNN is. And the answer the answer is that actually, there, it turns out, there was a very concerted effort to shift the BBC's culture away from um, a public ethos and towards a more commercial ethos, and it's very deliberate. And it was response to the um the attacks of factorism, but also the shift towards what we now call neoliberalism. Now For some reason, people don't seem to ignore this fact, which is completely obvious, actually, if you have anything like a critical understanding of what was going on in British society. But in fact, if you look at the the person who headed the BBC in the aftermath of the Thatcher era, a man called John Burt, uh, he's very explicit about it in his autobiography. Um, Now, Burt's not very liked in the BBC or in public life generally, which explains why nobody apart from me actually bothered to read his book but if you read his book he's quite explicit about his politics um he remarks how he says trade unions are out of control how the state can't answer problems how markets always the answer yeah, and he says quite explicitly um, how he, he, he came to this view in conversations with people like Terry Burns who or Alan Budd, who were advisors to Margaret Thatcher, um, spent time at the Institute for Eco- Economic Affairs um, and with Keith Joseph, all of these pioneering theorists of neoliberalism. And he was also very close to a man called Peter Jay, um, who was an influential figure at the, at the um, Times, popularized monetarism. Okay. Was very, very impressed with Milton Friedman, um, was a, uh, you know, also very much part of those networks. So he's quite explicit about it, but did a couple of things um, when he became director general. The context for him becoming deputy director general in 1987 was the removal of Alistair Milne, the then director general, um, at the behest of the Thatcher government, and his replacement with a man called Michael Checkland, who's not terribly important Um, but and he the thing was that Checkton wasn't a program maker and they brought in John Burke from the commercial rivals to the head of the BBC's journalism. What he did there was he, he he said that we need to introduce highbrow journalism, we have a mission to explain, and this was his sort of philosophical rationale for the, the shift that's going to take place. But the long and short of that, and you, if people are interested in that, they can re- read the book, was that the, the journalism became much less, um, much more risk averse and much more centrally controlled. Once he had pushed that through, he had a new vision for the BBC, um, which was to integrate it much more into the market. And he had something called Producer choice, which was basically um, informed by, you know, public choice visions of new public management, and this sort of thing. We would create an internal market in the BBC and the BBC would take programmes from the commercial sector. Um, This had all been recommended by a government inquiry that had been headed by uh, a man from the Institute of Economic Affairs called Alan Peacock. And so there was this mission to commercialise the BBC, to to shift its culture, and he's very explicit about this, away from a status sort of culture towards a commercial culture. And along with that institution of an internal market reform, there was also a concerted effort to push out the old labor correspondents and replace them with business correspondents. And the the change is really very dramatic. Um, It takes place over a long period of time. But by the time you get to 2008 and the crash, uh, you've got no labor reporters at the BBC whatsoever. And you've got this enormous, um, what was called the business and economics unit there hundreds of journalists who's who's who mainly come from the, the private sector, who's basically saw their job as economics reporters in reporting and explaining the economy um, as more or less synonymous with reporting and explaining on business. And so once we arrived in 2008, um, this is a very, very long story and it's probably more convincing if you have all of the ins and outs and the details, uh, you have an organisation that's not only been Thoroughly sort of commercialized and gutted of any kind of public ethos, but also the people who are relied upon to explain how the economy works and how we should respond to an economic crisis, who are sort of thoroughly embedded in that world and whose kind of sense of their professional skills and contacts was very much part of the business world and all, all of that explains how what happened in the way the bbc responded to the, the 2008 financial crisis which so there's very good work on this by uh, mike berry at cardiff university and others looking at how the bbc responded and essentially it was to parrot the message that was coming from the conservative party and essentially you know the political effect of that as people are probably aware of was to um punish the people at the bottom of society and preserve the power of the people at the top, to put it rather crudely. Um, all of that organizational infrastructure was laid in the aftermath of that trism. And I think post-2008 was the, the chickens coming home to roost, really.
0: Let me end by asking you about whether the BBC is salvageable. I mean, there, some would argue that any institution that is connected to the state if you don't view the state as sort of a neutral entity that it's in danger of being influenced and having a a pro-establishment bias there are others who would argue that publicly funded institution is something to fight for what do you argue
1: well, I think, um, you know, it's it's correct that you, you can't have a, that a status broadcaster is going to have like some very serious limitations. I mean, I don't think, I certainly wouldn't defend the BBC on its current model. I think the question simply becomes, well, when you say, is the BBC salvageable? Well, what are the specific problems? I mean, the, the problem isn't that it's a public institution. The problem is that it doesn't have the kind of independence that's claimed of it. We, we've we touched on some of these elements, but there's the periodic renewal of the BBC's charter. There's the fact that the government can set the rate of the license fee there's the government appointees to the board and then there's other problems to do with the general to and fro of personnel in and out of the bbc to the private sector to the corporate media to intercorporate corporate pr and into government more broadly and the general kind of elite orientation of, of the personnel and the bureaucratic nature of the of the BBC. Now, these are all problems, but they're all problems which you could address. And I think you address them by removing any governmental power over the BBC, by making the BBC at least, I mean, you you couldn't, I I think it would, you know, you'd still want a public body. But what you want is to limit the capacity for um, political elites to be able to shape its culture. But I think also internally, What you want to do is think about, well, how could you have an organisation where you can maximise the freedom of the journalists within it? Because I think the problem is people tend to think about the BBC as, okay, how can we protect the BBC from government? And yes, you know, that's a very important place to start. Ultimately, though, people need to think slightly less abstractly about this and think, well, okay, what what kind of institution could we build which would would do the best job that we want the BBC to do, which includes not only independent journalism, which isn't fearful of um, establishment interest, but also important aspects of cultural production and representation. Now, my view is number one, that you remove all kinds of state controls over the BBC. Um, number two, I think you need a much more devolved organization. I think the universe the universalism at the BBC is really important. And by universalism, I mean um, that anybody in the UK, and ideally I would like anybody in the world to be able to watch the BBC's programs for free and all of the BBC's content, because actually that's a very efficient, model of journalistic and cultural production, because if you think of what the big corporations do, they have to put paywalls around their content or they have to use various kinds of monitoring algorithms to uh, be able to monetize their audiences. So the BBC, a public, a, a genuinely public body, doesn't have to do that. And that's a very good um, model, I think, for production. But if you're going to do that, if you're going to do that and you're going to have a compulsory payment and a universal access, then I think you have, need to have mechanisms of accountability. Now, at the moment, the mechanism of accountability is basically the government of the day. Now, in theory, and in the heads of people at the BBC, this is a form of democratic accountability because they basically take the democratic nature of the British political system for granted. Um, in reality, it's nothing of the sort. It just means that the BBC has very limited independence from the centre of social power. So I think you need to... You need to Move the BBC away from the state, keep it public, but make it more like an, a civil society a publicly funded civil society organization one that's devolved but also one that's localized and uh, democratically accountable and and I think there are interesting ways you can do that the BBC's experimented with audience panels um I think there's no reason why you couldn't have um, appointments to the boards um, being democratised, I would want the boards anyway to be localised, experimentations with forms of lot, or for example my friend Dan Hind has um, been long advocated a form of public commissioning, so in other words that members of the public would be able to have some say in what kinds of programmes get made and what types types of topics get investigated and researched. So My vision basically will be for the BBC um, as a universal platform, which could sit um, as part of a much broader, devolved kind of media ecology. But I think you need to have that public core there. And I think it's important to bear in mind that some of the You know, the BBC has actually supported in many ways some of the more, in some ways, more effective journalistic um, organisations like um, Channel 4 and and ITV. When the BBC was uh, its most strong, it it kind of formed uh, as a centre of training and expertise and infrastructure for the rest of the sector. So that's, that's that's the kind of BBC that I would like to see. One that's independent, one that's more democratic, one that's more responsive to the public. Rather than elites, and I think to to think about things in those terms, we have to think in a very forward-looking way, and I think that also means about thinking about the BBC as a as a as a digital platform rather than a producer of, of television programs, and that's been the big challenge with the BBC. It's it thinks of itself as um, a television and as a broadcasting organization, and I think it needs to get out of that mindset. But another problem is that it's been very hampered in terms of being able to in being able to innovate by commercial regulation, so the, the interests which are aligned against the BBC have basically limited its capacity to do this, but that's that's broadly what my vision would look like.
0: Tom Mills, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I've been speaking with the author of the BBC, Myth of a Public Service, which is published by Verso. He's a lecturer in sociology at, at Aston University in the UK. And I'm Sasha Lilly. You've been listening to Against the Grain. Thanks so much for listening, and please tune in again next time.